I was uh, 16 years old, and we just got done with basketball practice. It was a really, really snowy day. And so after basketball practice, several of the guys on the team decided we would take our cars out to the back of the parking lot of Centerville High School, and we would do donuts. Um, if you are younger, don't drive yet, don't follow my example. Um, but we decided we would go do donuts, and it was great because we would get going 15, 20 miles an hour, turn the wheel, slam on the emergency brake, and just let the cars spin. It was, it was great. It was going very well until I decided to take it up a notch. So I decided, you know, what happens if we get going like 25, 30, 40 miles an hour, then hit the emergency brake? And first spin was really fun. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw a fence that was probably about 30 feet away. Second spin or third spin, I realized it was about 15 feet away. By the time I rounded that third spin, I hit the chain link fence. So I immediately backed the car up, got out of the car, looked to see if there was any damage. There was none, which is why my parents are hearing the story for the first time today. <laughs> um, so there was no damage to the car, so I'm good, right? So then I decided I better check the fence. So I look at the fence, and there's no damage. And it's a chain link fence, and I started thinking about that. Really, if I would have hit a privacy fence, I think I would have broke the wood. But a chain link fence, I actually looked it up, 45,000 pounds per square inch is how much it can withstand. And the reason why I think a chain link fence can withstand such pressure is because of its design. It's designed, it's got like little diamonds, right? And all the diamonds are linked into other diamonds that help hold it and give it strength. So when I hit it, it was able to give and play. And, and so I tell you that, though, because we've been in this series where we're talking about how did Jesus model surrender, sacrifice, submission. And we're getting to a point where we're in it, we've been in it several weeks, and we're getting to a point where we're getting ready to have a lot of, uh, of overlap, in fact, last week we talked about repet um, I can't think. I would say I want to say repetition, but we talked about reputation, right? So we talked about reputation. Well, this week we're going to talk about humility, and they really overlap so much. And so I, my challenge for us is that we, as we move forward in this series and we begin to hear some um, repetition of things, that we don't check out. Because I think that that overlap that we're going to get is going to help build strength of who God is, our, our picture of who Jesus is. And so what we've been doing so far, we, we first we said that Jesus surrendered to his own will. He surrendered his will to God. Then, then we said that he sacrificed to have time alone with God. And then we said, not only did he do that, he, he surrendered his life to a work-rest balance. And then last week we said that he surrendered his reputation and this week, we're going to say that he surrendered to humility. But by the end of today, my hope is that we don't just say that he had a one-time event of humility, but that we see that he lived a posture of humility. And this is one of the things that's by far the hardest for us. It's so hard. I think we don't even realize how prideful we are. You know, I mean, I've heard people say, I'm the most humble person there's ever been, which is kind of prideful, right? So... That's what we're talking about today is humility. We're going to look at John chapter 13, verse 1 through 20. So if you have a Bible, you want to flip it open. Um, John chapter 13, starting in verse 1 through 20. Before we jump into it, let me give you a quick background as to what's going on here. Jesus has been living. He's, he's been doing miracles. He's been... Um, He's been, he, he even brought Lazarus back from the dead. So, like, he's got this following. People, there's huge crowds surrounding him. This Jesus guy is this crazy guy. Like, what is going on here? 
He's done all that stuff, but it's made the religious leaders of the day and age kind of mad. They don't like it. They want to kill him. And so Judas, one of Jesus' 12 followers, kind of goes and he says, hey, I'll betray Jesus. To, to, I'll give him to you for 30 pieces of silver. And so that's what's happened so far. And Jesus, um, he tells his two of his disciples, hey, I want you guys to go and get um, a donkey. And they're like, okay, we'll go get a donkey. So they come back with a donkey, and Jesus rides this donkey into Jerusalem. And the significance of that is in that day and age when someone would ride a donkey into a town, it was like announcing themselves as king. And so the people, the crowd, as Jesus is riding this donkey into town, they're throwing their coats down on the ground. They're taking palm branches and waving them, and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They're saying like, yes, you are king. You are going to be the king. But see, Rome is who kind of who, who really ruled over that area. So a lot of people thought, this Jesus is getting ready to take over Rome. So he comes in riding on this donkey. Everybody's saying, yes, you're the king, you're the king, you're the king. And they're going to Jerusalem, and Jesus um, t- says to, to Peter and to John, hey, guys, go find us a room. You're going to go to this place, you'll find this, and you get this room and make preparations because we're going to have our Passover meal together. And that's what we're going to be reading. But again, it's like you're getting ready to have the Passover meal, but what is Passover meal? And so this, is, this introduction is going to be a long introduction, by the way. So... They're going to have their Passover meal. So what is Passover? So that goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. All the way back in the book of Exodus, God had his people, the Israelites, okay? And these people, God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations. So the problem comes in is that they they find themselves in slavery. And they call out to God and they say, God, will you rescue us from slavery? And so God raises up a guy by the name of Moses, and he is supposed to lead the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. So that process starts, and God says to him, go to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh says no. And every time Pharaoh says no, God tells Moses to do a miracle, like to do a a plague on the, the nation, because the nation will not listen to what God says. So it happens nine times. He does all sorts of plagues. He turns the Nile to blood. That'd be pretty crazy. The land is filled with frogs. That would be really crazy. The land is filled with gnats, with flies, with locusts, and all these things happen. But then the Pharaoh still says, no, I'm not letting you go. I want you guys to be my slaves because if I have all these slaves, I get a lot of stuff done around here. So he says no. So then the 10th plague is... is um, told to Moses. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God says, if you do not let us go, that the firstborn child of every Egyptian person will be dead tomorrow morning. And Pharaoh says, no. Can you imagine like just the, the unwillingness to fear God to say no to something like that? But Pharaoh says, nope, not letting your people go. So God says to Moses, here's what you're supposed to tell the Israelites. You're going to take a pure, spotless lamb, and you're going to kill it. And you're going to take that blood, and you're going to wipe it on your doorframe. And, and by that lamb's blood, it's going to cover you. And that blood, as it covers you, you, you can't break the bones of the lamb, but you're going to take it, you're going to break it, and you're going to eat of this lamb. And by doing that... The angel of death that comes through to, to kill every firstborn, he will pass over you. And you and your Israelites, none of your kids, firstborn, will die that night. 
So they fear God, so they do it, right? That night happens. The firstborn child of every Egyptian family dies. Every single one of them. Not one of the Israelites' firstborn child dies. And the Lord passed over. The blood that was on their door made it so that God passed over, that the angel of death passed over, and they were spared. And so from then on out, year in, year out, every year they would celebrate this Passover because all the way back in history, God passed over and the Israelites were spared. And so these 12 guys along with Jesus, they're going to go to this upper room to remember the Passover. So you get the, the 12 disciples with Jesus all this stuff has happened. He's been announced as king, and they're coming in. They're going in this upper room, and they're going to celebrate this Passover of what God has done. So there they are. Um, John chapter 13, verse 1 through 20, that kind of gives us our background. So let's read. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and he had come from God and he was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not just my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place, and he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, the Lord, and your teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash the feet of each other. It's to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you who do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may know that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let's pray. God, um, I pray that you will empty me. You empty me of any pride that is in my heart and my mind. Pray that you will help me to communicate what it is that is going on here. 
pray that you will open our hearts to hear it. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So there they are, just before they're getting ready to eat, they're hanging out, and they are um, there for the, the Lord's Supper. How many people have seen the painting of the Lord's Supper? Probably all of us, right? And in this, you have like all of them sitting in a line, because you know most people when they gather for a meal together, they just sit in a line, unless they're at their own wedding, and they're sitting there like the... So they're, they're sitting in a line. Well, that's not really what it would have looked like. What would it have looked like? Well, um, in that culture, they would have had a really low table. So a really, really low table. They're not sitting in chairs. They're not sitting in a line. They're sitting very low to the ground, uh, more like at a coffee table. So picture a low coffee table, and all the disciples are hanging out. So you've got 13 people around one table. Now, they, they didn't have chairs. They didn't have much money for chairs. And so they're, they're sitting there, and they're reclined. So they're kind of leaned over. Well, Sarah and I had a foreign exchange student by the name of Abhinav Krishna live with us, and he was from India. And Abhinav really helped us understand his culture that actually, I think, has really helped me understand this culture. So they are reclined at the table, and the way that they would do this is they would lean on their left shoulder or the left elbow. This is not your shoulder. They lean on your left elbow. And so, so picture, they're kind of around this really low table. They're just kind of leaned on their left shoulder, left elbow. Sorry, I keep doing it. They, they wouldn't really be able to see the table very well. But, so they leaned on their left elbow, eating with their right hands. Now, the reason why this is, we know this is because um, Abhinav, when he was moving back to India, we asked him, what are you going to miss the most about the United States? He said, toilet paper. <laughs> We're like, what? He said, in my culture, the plumbing system cannot handle the waste and toilet paper. That is what your left hand is for. So you get a little bit of water, you get your left hand, and you clean up. Anybody ready to go on a mission trip to India? We're announcing what no, I'm saying. So... So that's what, that's what he was going to miss the most. And so I think it's very possible for this culture, from everything I read, that they would lean on their left elbow to eat their food with their right hands. And the reason is very similar to what's happened in India. Is your left hand was your cleaner hand, and you don't want to eat with your cleaner hand, no matter how well you wash with the bar of soap. I'm not trusting that left hand anymore, right? So you're eating with your right hand. So they're, they're at this low, low table, leaned over. At a table like we have, you're sitting at chairs, you don't see anybody's feet, right? Well, in this culture, you're leaned around that table, you still see each other's feet. How many of you are like, yeah, you know, pizza sounds really good, I'll eat a piece of pizza, just put your foot in my face, and I'll just keep eating. Like, no, it's, so Jesus is sitting there, they live in this culture where they walk a lot, they have these long, um, there's, a, there's a right name for them, like a robe, we'll call it and their, their feet are open, and they're wearing sandals. They're walking dusty. How many people, you cut your grass, you do the weed, 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 weed eater? Can't talk today. <laughs> and you get done, and you look down at your feet, you take your shoes off, and you can see the full line of where your shoe was, right? Or you come home from work where you've been dirty, and you can see that. So I think that they're sitting there, reclined around the table. Jesus looks over, and you can see people's dirty feet just sitting there. You can see these lines. It's almost like if you, if you take off your flip-flops after you've been out on the beach, you can see like the lines of where it was. And so, so their dirty feet are sitting there. And 
it says that it's during supper, they see that. They recline at the table. Now, I started thinking about this. Why? What's going on here? In this culture, normally there'd be a bucket of water out in front of your house. So when you get there, when your guests get there, they can wash their feet before they enter your house. Even when, we, when I was in Mazalan just a couple months ago, Mazalan, Mexico with Grant and Kelly Keys, in the front of their house, there's a water spigot, like right at the sidewalk. You can wash your feet before you go into the house. And so normally they'd have this little catch basin. You wash your feet before you come in the house, but, but it's not there. Well, why is it not there? We'll get to that. Um, maybe the second is you have a servant. You have like a slave whose job is when you have guests come over, you're going to wash their feet before they go into the house. But that's not there either. Well, I don't, I don't think it's always a good thing to like add into the story or try to figure out exactly what's going on, how it's going on. To like, but, but I want to for a minute. Peter and John are told, hey, go and get everything, go make the preparations for the Last Supper. So Peter and John go and they make the preparations. So why didn't they put a bucket of water out at the door? Why didn't they hire, they had money, why didn't they hire some servant to come and to be ready to wash the feet? I think there could be three different things. One, they were too distracted. Jesus had just done some crazy, crazy stuff. He went into the temple. He flipped over all the tables of the money changers just right before this. And he gets a whip out and he drives them out. And he says, this house should be a house of prayer, not a den of robbers. Can you imagine like you two are going to walk to make preparations for the, for the Passover meal. And Jesus has just done something like that. Like I could see them being distracted and be like, do you, like what is this guy doing? He's getting crazier and crazier. He's, he, he brought Lazarus back to dead. He took a whip in and he drove people out of the temple. Like what's going on? They could have just been distracted. Maybe they're not distracted. Maybe they're too busy. Um, if we picture Passover to kind of be like Christmas for us, like a, a religious holiday where there's a lot going on, they would have been traveling there. They would have had to bring stuff. I mean, there would have been a lot going on. Now they've got to go make preparations for where they're going to have the meal. And they could have been too busy. There's times where Sarah and I have thought we bought a gift for somebody, and then we're getting all the gifts out to wrap them, and we realize we didn't get them a gift. So then you've got to go into your your old gift back box and find a gift to re-gift, you know, to give to them. And it's like, here, you get boggle, you know. Uh, but um, they could have been too busy. Maybe when John and Peter went to set up, they were too busy, they were too distracted. Um, or maybe they were too prideful. This job is a job of a servant. And maybe, maybe Peter and John are like, I'm not putting the bucket of water out. I'm, I'm above that. We don't know why. But we do know from Luke's account that there's a dispute. They're getting ready for the, for the Lord's Supper, and there's this fight going on among the disciples over which one is greater. This pride. They're sizing each other up. They're like, okay, Jesus is number one. Got that. Okay, which one of us is number two? I would argue that they were both number two, but that goes back to the earlier wiping stuff. So, uh, um, so they all are arguing over who is the greatest. Can you picture this? They're, they're leaned around the table. They're reclined around the table on their elbow, not their shoulder. They're eating with their right hands. They're fighting over which one's the best. 
There's been no bucket of water put out to wash feet. No one's washed their feet before they enter. Their feet are dirty, and they're getting ready to eat this meal. They're getting ready to remember the Passover. And Jesus rises. He goes and he gets a bucket of water. If you stop there, it's pretty amazing. Jesus has just ridden into town announcing himself as king. Jesus, at the very beginning of time, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. In the very beginning of time, God and Jesus, they're one and they're sitting there in unity. Let us make man in, in our image. This Jesus is sitting there. Isaiah chapter six is like one of the most beautiful pictures of what worship really looks like. And there's these creatures that have six wings. With two, they cover their faces. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they fly. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, that has happened in all of eternity past. Jesus is being worshiped like that. And he comes to earth and he's sitting around a table and everyone's feet are dirty. No one has even noticed that his feet are dirty because they're too prideful, wondering which one of us is number two. This king rises from the table and he goes and gets a bucket of water. You stop there and it's amazing. A king is getting his own bucket of water. And let's just say he washes his own feet. The king comes in, he's got the bucket of water, he washes his own feet, and then he sits down and he's like, now you do likewise. That would be pretty powerful. But it doesn't stop there. He goes and he gets the bucket of water. I assume, I don't know, maybe he washes his own feet, and then he takes it over and he begins washing the other disciples' feet. This king is washing feet. Think about whose feet he's washing. Let's talk about this. Um... What were the, the disciples' jobs prior to Jesus? Many of them were fishermen. If you know anything about fishermen, my father in law is not here today, so I can say this. Every fisherman that you know is a liar, right? They always tell, I call a fish this big, and then you see pictures, and it was like a little bluegill, right? A little minnow they caught. Jesus is washing the feet of fishermen. It's thought that Simon the Zealot, one of the disciples, could have been a political activist. If you know anything about politicians, and Jesus is down. If anybody here is a politician, I didn't mean you. I meant the other politicians. <laughs> uh, Jesus is down washing the feet of this political activist, potentially. What about Matthew, Levi, as he's called in, in, in the Bible? He's a tax collector. Tax collectors in this day and age, they steal the money. They tell you, your tax isn't 10%, it's 20%. So they get more money than they can line their own pockets with the extra 10%. That is, Jesus is on his knees. This king is on his knees washing the feet of fishermen, tax collectors, sinners. He's washing his feet of potentially political activists. This king talk about humility. I don't want to wash any of your guys' feet. 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 I've seen some of y'all's feet. I don't want to wash feet. Jesus is on his knees washing the feet of these people. What else do we know about these people? These are the people who will scatter. When Jesus gets captured, they scatter. 
like ants in a mat with a magnifying glass. They just scatter. We, when you look at um, the, the section of Scripture, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and then in verse 3 it says, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and then in verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. Jesus is all-knowing. He's, he's sitting there washing the feet, and he knows every one of you is going to scatter the second I get caught. He knows it already. And Jesus is washing the feet of the people who, when trouble comes, say, peace out, I'm out of here. But Peter, when, when, when Jesus tells them, you're all going to scatter, Peter says, not me. Nope. Uh, no matter what any of these guys do, I'm, I'm with you forever. And Jesus says to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter, I'm sure, thought, there's no way I'm doing that. He denies Jesus three times, including once to a servant girl, which would have been the lowest class of people in this, in this time frame. And this little servant girl says, don't you know Jesus? Nope, not me. Jesus knows that. And he's washing Peter's feet. Everything that we read in this, Judas is still there. He knows it is Judas who will betray him. A chapter before it says that, that Judas was the, it doesn't say it this way, but he was the treasurer of the whole group. He was the one who had the money bag. And it says that they, the, Judas kind of makes this comment and it says that they, he didn't say it because he cared about the poor, he said it because he used to help himself to the money bag. He was a thief. So this Judas, who's a thief, who's going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver, which is very little money. The upper end of what it would have been is like 30 days of work. The lower end of what it would be is much, much less than that. And Jesus sees the dirty feet of this man who's going to betray him, and he's on his knees washing his feet. Put yourself in this story. It's not a story. It's real. Put yourself there. If, if God knew what I had done, you're no worse than Judas. He would have been on his knees washing your feet. The humility of Jesus. Brian, you don't know what I've done. He already knows what you've done. And he would be on his knees washing your feet. Brian, the things I've done to people, the things I've said about people, the, the thoughts I've had, he'd be on his knees washing your feet. The humility of Jesus. He's this king, and he's washing feet. It wasn't just a one-time event of Jesus living this type of humility. If you look backward into Scripture, this king, this guy who, who, who is in heaven, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's being praised 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. This, this Jesus leaves the comforts of heaven to come to earth to be born of a woman, of a teenage woman. 
He comes, and, and he's born into a working-class family. And when he gets to a place where he's about to be born, there's no room for him in the inn, so they just put him in a manger. Humility of this king. He's going to be a carpenter. He himself is going to be working class. The religious people of the day and age are going to question him, accuse him, want to kill him. And the humility that comes from this God who is hated. When I think of a king, I think of a castle. But this king doesn't live in a castle. This king has no place to lay his head. This king doesn't eat the best food while he's on earth, but he says that I have food that you do not know of, and it's the food to do the will of God. He continually, throughout scriptures, you read through, he's, he's fasting. He's not eating. If I'm a king, you would not believe the spread that I would have at my table every day. But Jesus often goes without food, and when he does eat food, he eats fish and bread. He doesn't ride a chariot or a horse and a buggy. If I'm king, just sitting in that carriage the whole time. Take me where I want to go. Jesus walks, and we said this two weeks ago, it's estimated 3,125 miles that he walked on his feet during the course of his three-year ministry. It averaged out to 3.3 miles per day, six days a week. This king is humble. He doesn't hang out with the social elite, but he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. He's not hanging out with the healthy, but he's hanging out with the sick. He doesn't have this endless entertainment of brought to him with the best musicians and the best of every of comedy and the best drama that they're coming in to perform for him, but he is going out, he is teaching, he is healing, and now he is washing feet. This is a humble king. His kingdom is not founded on power and control, but on love and faith. When you look backward from this moment, all you see is a humble king. If you look forward from this moment, you see a humble king. You look forward, and here's what you see. You see a crowd is going to come to take Jesus. They're going to have clubs and weapons to take Jesus by night, and he goes willingly. One of his followers, Peter, takes a sword out, cuts a centurion's ear off. That would have been a sweet... If I could be anywhere in Scripture, that's one of the places I would be. Jesus picks picks up an ear off the ground, just hanging there. That and when Jesus spits on the ground and wipes it in some guy's eye and then he can see. Those are two places I'd love to be. But he picks up the ear, puts it on the centurion's face, and it's, boom, healed. And he goes willingly. This Jesus, who will be beaten, mocked, reviled, cursed, will have pieces of his beard ripped out, will be punched in the face while he's blindfolded and say, which one of us hit you? This guy who has all of this happen, he remains silent. He turns the other cheek. This guy who will be treated unfairly and tried by night, 
rather than by the day so they could kind of get the ruling through. And yet at any point in time, Jesus, who is the true judge, could overturn the ruling at any point in time. But he's humble. He's carried to the cross, nailed upon it, and raised up. He's not sitting on a seat of a throne, but he's nailed to a cross. Humble king. I've heard it said that it wasn't his nails that held him to the cross, but it was his love. At any point in time, he could get down. Even the thief, one of the thieves, they even, hey, if you're really God, just jump down. He could have at any point in time. But this humble king died on a cross, not of old age, didn't die in a castle at old age, but he died from being murdered on a cross, and he was dying for the very people he came to save. This is a humble, humble king. Jesus does not just have this moment of humility of washing the disciples' feet, but he has a posture of humility. That's just his posture, past, present, in this moment, in the future. He's a humble king. He's a posture of humility. Let's go back into this. Why are they there? Why are the disciples there? to celebrate Passover. In the past, he passed over them because of the blood. His bones wouldn't be broken and his body would be divided. His body would be split up. His body would be broken. Passover happened to point forward to what would happen to Jesus. While Jesus is on the cross, they go to break his legs so that he will die quicker. And when they get there, he's already dead. The, the pure spotless lamb Jesus, this humble king, he, his legs are not broken because he is the Passover lamb. It is his blood that covers us. At one point, it says, um, those who are already clean do not need to be washed it's so backwards, but do you know how you get clean in this life? You know how like, we go through the life and we do things, we say things that we, we regret, we, we're filled with guilt, with shame. Do you know what covers that? Do you know what washes that clean? It's blood. And it's so amazing to think through getting cleaner by wiping with blood. But it is the blood of Jesus that truly gives us forgiveness of sins. The way that we become clean is we are washed whiter than snow and it's through blood. The blood of our humble king. So they're there to celebrate Passover, but what's so crazy is Jesus is showing them he is the Passover lamb. He takes bread and just, just the next part of the chapter, he takes bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body that will be broken for you. They're there to celebrate Passover and they're failing to see that Jesus is the Passover lamb, pure and spotless, whose body will be broken, whose bone, or whose body will be broken, but his bones won't be broken, whose blood covers us, it washes us whiter than snow. If you are here today and you do not know 
about that blood washing over you. That is, the, the purpose of this text should be to see that I need to be washed by the blood. He says to Peter, you are already clean, just your feet are dirty. The reason why Peter was already clean is because he believed on this Passover lamb, even though in the moment he didn't recognize it. When you, maybe in your mind you thought, well, you don't know what I've done. I don't think Jesus would have washed my feet. He would have. And he wouldn't just wash your feet. He'd give his life and give his blood to cover you, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The humble king. Maybe you're like, Brian, I I believe in Jesus. I feel like I've been washed by the blood, but man, this life is rough. I'm with you. Day in and day out, as I walk through this life, I feel like my feet get dirty. I go places, I, th- I think things, I, I struggle in different ways, and I feel like my feet are dirty. And Jesus is down washing feet. Why did he do it? If we look over into verse 14, 15, Jesus says to them after he's washed their feet, he says, if then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. If you are here and you've never been washed by the blood, you're Judas. We're going to talk more about that next week. But if you have been washed by that blood, you still are in some need of some foot washing. And I think that he today wants to wash your feet. He wants to remind you of how he's already washed you with his blood. But also, he does this as an example. Jesus surrendered to a posture of humility. And this scripture happens to give us an example how those of us who have been washed by the blood should live. Humbly. Jesus did not wash the feet of the good ones. He did not just wash the feet of the deserving ones. He did not just wash the feet of the ones he liked. Jesus surrendered to a posture of humility. For those of us who know him, we should as well. At work, we should serve. At home, we serve. In our areas of ministry, we serve. With our kids, we serve. With our spouse, if we have one, we serve. With our friends, we serve. Those of us who know Jesus, who've been washed by this blood, we should be known by our love. But the second thing that I think that we should 100% be known by, humility. Because we have a humble king. God, I thank you that although I had nothing good to offer you. You emptied yourself on the cross. Your blood was spilled to cover me, to cleanse me of all unrighteousness, to wash me whiter than snow. God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that does not know the amazing cleansing power of the blood. Today would be the day that they would be washed in it. 
And God, I pray for anyone in this room who's struggling with guilt over recent sin. Anybody in this room who's struggling with thoughts that they know are contrary to you, I pray, God, that they would experience the humble king washing their feet today. God, I pray that we would be a people who truly know and understand who this humble king is. Again, I thank you and I praise you, not only for the washing of blood, but I thank you that while continually, day in and day out, I need a foot washing and that you, my my Lord, my Savior, are there washing my feet. God, I think that when I read that and see Peter's response, I think when someone humbly serves us, it leads us to humility. And so God, today I pray that we would truly experience this amazing, awesome, glorious king off of his throne, washing our feet, and it would draw us to him and draw us to humility. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.